welcome. I'm so grateful you are here. Uh, as I was standing here just uh, as we were worshiping in song a couple of minutes ago, it occurred to me that I want to share a story with you that it helps me relate to what happened on Palm Sunday in a little bit of a roundabout way, but I think you'll find out what I mean. Some years ago, uh, many years ago at this point, um, we were in a church, my wife and I and our kids, I was serving as pastor, and we became convinced over the course of a couple of years that our time, our ministry there at that church was complete. And uh, through an extensive time of prayer and seeking the face of God and uh, all of that, we, we came to the conclusion, and including some series, uh, a time of fasting and prayer, uh, that God would have us step down. And we believed when we did that, that God would open the next step. In fact, one of my kids said to me one day, you know, Dad, Abraham did get all the way to the top of the mountain with a knife in his hand before God said, okay, that's good. <laughs> I thought, okay, I'll learn from my kids. And so we did that, completely expecting that God would open the next door and we'd be in the next ministry that, that he opened for us. And and uh, so as I had begun a year earlier, sending out resumes, making contact with churches, lots of promising contacts, nothing uh, that was very solid, except for one that was uh, just down in Elizabeth City, so not terribly far from here. And all of a sudden, after about two months of talking with them, I got a phone call from the chairman of their leadership team who said, listen, I don't want you to get too far down the road in your thinking here. I think maybe you're further than we are, <laughs> which, as it turned out, they weren't anywhere on that road, and we weren't going there. And... Uh, so I had left my, my church and had no church to go to and began working in construction. So I worked as a carpenter, thinking, well, this will just be a little temporary thing and God will put us in a church. I began to serve as an interim pastor, one at a church in Richmond for almost a year and a half, one over uh, in Gloucester for almost six months. Then those dried up, and all of a sudden, I wasn't preaching, I wasn't pastoring, I was banging nails. And I went into a season in my life of great difficulty spiritually. I struggled because, if I'm really transparent, uh, I have uh, a degree in Christian administration, I have a doctorate in biblical preaching, I have a lot of experience. I mean, why wouldn't a church want a guy like that, right? Can I tell you they don't? <laughs> a lot of them don't really care. I had a prof in Bible college who used to, he had a PhD. He said, all those degrees, they're like the curls on the tail of a pig. They, they look cool, but it's still a pig. I came to understand that. I went into a season of spiritual struggle and turmoil because God didn't meet my expectations. I completely expected one thing, and God completely did something entirely different. Now, of course, I didn't know at the time that once I finished doing those interim pastorates and preaching at those churches, that we would begin attending Coastal Church 
And I would get to know Pastor Sean and at the time Pastor Joey and Pastor Andrew came during that season. And so we began to just attend church at Coastal. And uh, one day I was working away, putting up crown molding and my shoulder was hurting so badly I couldn't even lift the tools. And I called my wife and I said, I can't do this. I don't know what's next, but I can't lift my arms. So it's hard to be a carpenter. Ended up having surgery on my shoulder, all this, you know. This is, this is not a sob story, by the way. This is the sovereignty of God. But it is, it is connected to what I want to talk about today. It was probably within a month, the man who was coastal at the time was uh, leading small groups and doing pastoral care, left to go back to seminary. And Pastor Andrew, so you can either thank him or say thanks a lot afterwards because he and his wife Holly are visiting with us this morning, but uh, looked at me and said, hey, listen, could you give me a day a week to do pastoral care? I said, well, I got five or six of them free every week right now, so sure, why not? And within six months, I was at Coastal and, you know, so God was directing my steps and keeping me in my house and not moving me and my family away in a way that was completely different than what I expected. I've titled the message today, When Reality Meets Expectations, because that's what happened at Palm Sunday. Jesus came riding in, and we're going to go through it and talk about it, and all of the crowds were shouting and screaming and carrying on, and they had these incredible expectations. And within five days, they turned on him. I want to talk a little bit about why, and I think it has a lot to do with our expectations. So let me pray. Father, I thank you. I thank you for for the way that you've worked in my life many times in ways that I not only didn't expect, but quite honestly didn't appreciate, except as I look back. So, Lord, I know. I know my brothers and sisters here, maybe someone who's visiting uh, here has had similar experiences. And I pray that you would use that to help us to think through the manner in which we should honor you as our king. And I pray that you'd be pleased with what happens as we look at the scriptures together this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus has been traveling on his way to Jerusalem. He is steadfast. He is going to Jerusalem and nothing is going to deter him. And along the way, last fall, We stopped at a couple of places with him. He talked to the rich young ruler. Remember him? Lord, what must I do to be saved? Jesus said, well, what's in the law and the prophets? And he, you know, do all of this and this. Oh, well, I've done all that since I was a kid. Which any honest, reasonable person would never say that. But he did. And so Jesus said, oh, well, good. We'll go sell everything you have. (laughs) Get rid of the idols of your heart. And follow me. He gave his final prophecy in in John chapter eighteen, or rather Luke chapter eighteen, to his disciples about his impending crucifixion and death. He healed the blind beggar outside of Jericho. He went to Zacchaeus's house, called him down out of that sycamore tree, and said, "I'm coming to your house for lunch today." And Zacchaeus was wonderfully saved. Then we come to 
our text today in chapter 12 of John. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was. So he's, he's on his way, and he's moving his way toward Jerusalem, and he stops in Bethany. It's really important for us to understand that good news travels fast, especially when it's better news than we think it is. <laughs> Or when it's, we think it's better news, then it's going to turn out to be, at least from our vantage point. Good news travels fast. That's a, that's a good thing. These six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was. And I'm going to read this whole text uh, right now through down through uh, verse 8 for now. Uh, Jesus had raised... Lazarus from the dead. And I know this isn't on your screen, but I want to give you the background. So they gave a dinner for him there. Dinner party, right? Martha served. Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table who had been dead and come back to life. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Why didn't we sell a year's wages? Man, that would have been great. Think what we could have done with our benevolence fund. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Now I want to jump down to verse 12 for a minute. The next day, so now five days, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus found a donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, O daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Good news travels fast. So we have two crowds here, right? One that has been at Bethany, a crowd that assembled there in Bethany, having seen Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. Of course, an amazing thing. And then a crowd coming from Jerusalem out to meet him. And these two crowds are converging why does it say so much about the crowds? Because this is one of the several festivals each year where every faithful Jew longed to be in Jerusalem. And the population of Jerusalem was often three to five times its normal size during Passover. The crowds were enormous. And they're converging on where Jesus is just outside of the city. 
the occasion, of course, is his arrival into Jerusalem. Now, back in Bethany, according to Luke uh, chapter 19, they showed up because they not only wanted to see Jesus, but they wanted to see Lazarus. Hey, there's that guy. (laughs) He was dead. They wanted to see the fruit of what Jesus had done, and they were excited about it. And in Jerusalem, word was out that Jesus was coming. And so, again, here they come. And now the group that was from Bethany has begun to intermingle with the group coming from Jerusalem, and they're still giving testimony. You should have seen. He told us to roll back the stone, and he'd been in there for four days already. And then he just said, Lazarus, come forth. And out came Lazarus, all wrapped up like a mummy. And we untied him, and then we had lunch. We saw Jesus bring somebody back to life again. The true crowds are converging. From Luke chapter 19, these are their words. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice And praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they'd seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. And here in chapter 12 and verse 13, they took palm branches, branches of palm trees, and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. It's quite a scene. Perhaps thousands of people assembling, shouting, screaming, having heard about the ministry of Jesus of Nazareth for these last several years, having perhaps been at some of those stops in Bethsaida or wherever else he had been, because these people had all come from elsewhere in the empire and had different stories of what had happened in their interaction with Jesus. I wonder... If that woman who he walked by one day with the issue of blood and reached out and touched his robe and was healed, I wonder if she was there. Or the lady who the Pharisees had caught in adultery and brought her to Jesus and said, do you think we should stone her? Jesus said, probably. How about you who are without sin, you get the first throw. I wonder if people like that, I wonder if Zacchaeus was along with the crowd, right? Trying to see still. I wonder if that blind beggar from Jericho was in the crowd. Say, listen, you got, it's not just Lazarus. I mean, I was blind forever. I wonder who all was there and what they were saying. They were testifying of what Jesus had done. But, of course, there were the detractors, right? Most of them were part of a group of people that were very religious. They were called the Pharisees. Some of them were there at the resurrection of Lazarus. This is how that happened. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Isn't that interesting? 
Did you see what he did? He raised a guy from the dead like it's a bad thing, right? So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. There are always the naysayers. There are always the detractors who will say, yeah, I know, I know what Jesus did, but. And they're always loud. They began to lay plans to kill Jesus. But according to Mark 14, they wanted to do it by stealth. They wanted to do it quietly. Well, we don't want to do it at the feast because that's going to cause too much of an uproar. They also planned to kill Lazarus. I read that in John chapter 12. The chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well because on account of him, many Jews were going and believing in Jesus. What did he do? All he did was die and come back to life again. But they wanted to kill him again because what Jesus had done in his life was so obvious that those who were the naysayers and the detractors wanted to get rid of him. We can't have that story spreading around. And even the, the Pharisees themselves recognized, man, the world has gone after him. Why did all of that happen? I think it's because there were some misguided expectations. They anticipated a conquering king. That's why the palm branches. That's why the cloaks thrown on the ground. That's what you did for a conquering king. You threw stuff down in the way to soften the path because the king had come back from conquering his foes. There are scriptures they would have known well, and they expected Jesus would fulfill them. Genesis chapter 49, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Isaiah chapter 9, familiar verses that you hear at Christmas time. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And Micah, chapter 5 and verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth to me the one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, of ancient days. They knew the scriptures. And they saw all of these things in their scriptures, prophesying about Jesus and Man, they made the connections and got those dots connected in the right order, and it all led to Jesus is our king. And they began to celebrate. But rather than a conquering king, he came as a humble king. A conqueror rode on a royal steed. A man of peace rode on a donkey. 
fear not, Zechariah is quoted as saying, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He is humble, it says there. They forgot the humble part. They forgot the fact that he was bringing with him salvation. The Messiah would be forsaken and pierced. They had a hard time understanding why that would be true and how that could be possible. Because cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. That couldn't be the Messiah. Psalm 22. And then familiar words that you've read before if you've been around the family very long from Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was wounded, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. That stuff hadn't happened yet, right? Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he is taken away. And as for his generation, who consider that he was cut off in the land of the living, with no uh, stricken for the transgression of my people? They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. There was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. Man, hang on to those thoughts for a little bit. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered among the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Those two pictures seem very different, right? The one is a conquering king. The one is over all of the peoples. The one has the rod and the staff and the scepter, and it's all big and powerful, and he's the king. And that's what they celebrated. And that's what they expected. So where was the confusion? I want to read a little bit of a section from a, a man named Merrill Unger, Old Testament scholar. He says this, What the Jews expected and what the Old Testament revelation should have led them to expect are two different things. The Jewish expectation had been deepening during the time preceding the Christian era, but the Jewish people were not prepared to recognize Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. The reason is the rabbinical and popularly received ideas of the Messiah. Their mistake was not in rejecting the scriptures, but in not interpreting them correctly. Their interpretation was not wholly false, but it left out the elements of greatest importance. The sinfulness of man's nature was reduced from the Bible's meaning. 
So the deepest thought of the Messiahship, salvation of the world, was lacking. The main ideas were kingship, deliverance, and chiefly of national significance. The restoration of national glory was the great hope of Israel in the day of Jesus. So what happened then? He's coming in to celebratory shouts of, Lord, save! Hosanna! And five days later, he's on a cross because that group of detractors convinced everybody to say, we'd rather have a murderer set free than Jesus the king. How could that happen so quickly? How did that tide change? I think it's because they still didn't believe. John chapter 12 and verse 37. This is toward the end of this chapter we're studying from. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So many signs. When John gets to the end of his gospel, he, he basically says, man, there is so much more I could have written, but I didn't. He had done so many signs, but they still didn't believe him. Why? Because if the, if the kingship of Jesus, if his lordship in my life means good right now, I'm all in. But if it includes things like suffering, I'm not so sure I like that part. They lived with expectation. One of our members here at Hampton sent me a, an article just recently that fits so incredibly well, so I'm going to read you a little bit from it. They lived with expectation. We think of that as good, okay. Living with a sense of expectation, but I want to tweak that a little bit. I think it is healthier for us to live with a sense of expectancy. See, even his disciples didn't understand yet, right? In verse 12, or in verse 16 of chapter 12, it said they didn't even, they didn't even understand till after he had come back from the dead. Our lives should be lived with expectancy, not necessarily with expectation. Because expectation tends to dictate the terms. The Pharisees lived with expectation and rejected Christ when he didn't fit the rigid narrowness of their expectations. Often I wonder if we, waiting for Christ's return, do it more with expectation than expectancy. Expectation insists he do it just this way. Sometimes expectation blinds us more to the God who is than outright disbelief does. The Pharisees couldn't see Jesus for looking. Or the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. There they are, bemoaning the absence of the very one who's present with them. What made them deaf and blind? Their expectations. We had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. But that hope took a form that shut out surprises like crucifixions and resurrections and redemption. 
So here's my question. As we, as we think through this, this reality that we, more often than we want to admit, let our expectations govern how we respond to Jesus. Do we do that? I shared a story about how I did it in a season of my life. And frankly, it's not the only season, unfortunately, in which I did that. But I didn't want to take up the whole sermon talking about my failings. So, <laughs> But I wonder if you have done that. If you have set up expectations. I just believe Jesus is going to do this and this and this and this. And it didn't turn out to be this and this and this and this. And you ended up disappointed. Were you disappointed because Jesus didn't do what he's going to do? Or did you end up disappointed because he didn't do what you expected he would do? If I am submitted to the kingship of Jesus, then when reality meets my expectations, I submit to the reality of who is the king. That's really hard though, right? I love to follow Jesus and I expect you do too, as long as it's safe, soft, and easy. As long as it's comfy. As long as it's exciting. As long as it involves another car or something when I need it or when I think I need it. Whatever. I love to follow Jesus when it's safe, soft, easy, and comfortable. Not so much when it involves trials and struggles. It just feels like it ought to be easier, though nobody ever said it would be. In fact, Jesus himself promised it wouldn't. But somehow, we let our expectations get in the way. It's because of our aversion to difficulty, our aversion to trials and troubles. So let me give you a couple thoughts to take with you as it relates to Jesus, the King. And the first is this. I plead with you today to receive Jesus. All through this story, we heard references to the gospel without pointing it out yet. So let me try and tie them all back together. It talked about back in Zechariah 9 about Jesus who came bringing salvation. We read from the prophecy of Isaiah how Jesus would suffer and die paying the penalty for sin, taking our transgressions on himself. That's the gospel, right? Jesus, God in the flesh, who lived here this perfect life that none of us could ever live, fulfilling all of the law, came to the end of his life, was arrested, was tortured and tormented and crucified, and he died. And he did so, again, from back in the Old Testament, bearing the sin of the transgressors. That's you and me. And then he was buried. And in another week, we get to celebrate what happened on the third day, and that is he came back to life again. Jesus, God in the flesh, came died paying the penalty for sin, was buried, came back to life again on the third day. So what is left? I repent of my sin. I recognize that part of what Jesus died for was me, the sins that I commit. I turn from my sin. I believe in the gospel. I receive Jesus. 
to as many as received him, he gave them the right, the authority, the power to become children of God. That's the gospel. That's what King Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to do it for the children of Israel. He came to do it for all who would believe in him, including you and me. So if you've never trusted in Jesus, I plead with you, do that today because next week is going to have a whole new feel to it for you, I promise. You will celebrate what Jesus did for you. Secondly, submit yourself to Jesus. I know, I get it. I've talked with some of you. I know some of you right now are in circumstances that if you got to write the playbook, this would not be included, these pages. I want to plead with you also, submit to Jesus. He is the king. He is the king of kings. He has the right as the sovereign ruler to do whatever will be best for his kingdom. Submit to him. And then thirdly, share what Jesus has done for you. Can you just imagine what it must have been like in that crowd? I mean, the buzz of the crowd, as people began to talk about what Jesus did for them, he made me see again. He brought me back to life again. He healed a disease I'd had for years and years and years. He changed my life. They couldn't help it. They told the people that were around them. Share what Jesus has done for you. Remember the, the one blind guy when the Pharisees called him in and said, what happened? How did this happen? And basically he said, listen, I'm not all that educated and you guys are really educated. All I know is I was blind, now I can see. You figure out the rest of it. You don't have to be a scholar to talk about what Jesus has done as you repented of your sin, believed in the gospel, and received Christ. Listen, it may be as simple as calling that friend you've been thinking about and inviting them to come to Easter services next week. They are all over here. you got somebody that lives in Yorktown, invite him to go to Yorktown campus. There's three services up there. I talked with a, a gal just this past week, one of my medical professionals, who I found out lives just down the road from uh, Walsingham where we're gonna have a preview service for our Williamsburg campus, Easter Sunday. I said, oh, I got just the place for you. You're just down the street. Invite people to come with you. I mean, sure, we'd love to have you join us at 1.30 today. We're gonna to hand out 500 door hangers across the road over here, invite that side of the street. We got this side a couple of times. But take an Easter invite card. Take it to work with you. Take a couple of them. Talk to your friends. Say, hey, listen, if you got no place to go Sunday, and I promise you there's no place better, come join me in church on Sunday. See, I'm, I'm, I'm praying for 150 people in this building on Sunday. That would be amazing. It would be incredible. Not because I care that much about how big the numbers are, but imagine 150 people in here hearing and celebrating the gospel of Jesus together. It's been a long time since that many people were in here. By the grace of God, I want to see that happen. I'll tell you, 
you need to come here because some of our campuses are filled to overflowing already. Maybe by next Easter, we'll have two choices for a service when to come, right? Jesus is king. Let's celebrate the reality of that, right? Listen, I'm going to I'm going to pray, and uh, the team's going to come back up, and then we'll close with our benediction, as we always do. But, uh, man, come on down front. We're going to have people waiting for you here. If you'd like to pray with them, I'd like to, to talk with them about something that's going on in your life. Maybe there's some struggling season that you're going through right now, and you're just thinking, man, I could sure use somebody to help me get my perspective right as I seek to submit to Jesus. Whatever your need is, you come on down, talk to them as they wait. Father in heaven. Thank you for the reality of the gospel. Thank you that we don't believe in something that's just uh, a great story, but something that actually happened in history. So, Father, I pray. I pray for everyone in this room, everyone who's listening right now on our live stream, those who may be watching later. God, I pray that if there's someone in that number who's never trusted in Jesus, the one who came to bring salvation, I pray that they would repent of their sins, believe in the gospel, and receive Christ. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would anew and afresh today submit ourselves to your kingship. You are the boss. You are in charge. And I pray that we would resubmit ourselves. And then, Lord, give us Give us courage. Give us the good sense to talk about the most amazing thing that's ever happened in our life and to talk to our friends and our neighbors and our family members about it. We lift you up. We exalt you today and honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.